Welcome to episode 746 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, filling in for Sam Miller. I have two guests again. They are former guests of the podcast, Harry Pavlidis, the Director of Technology at Baseball Prospectus, and Jeffrey Paternostro, who last time we talked to him in episode 719 was a mere... Mets writer at Amazing Avenue. He still is, but he is also now a fully-fledged baseball prospectus writer. So come on this podcast and big things happen for you. Hey, guys. Hey, how's it going? So Harry is a Cubs fan. Jeffrey is a Mets fan. So I thought I'd bring you guys on and you could just yell at each other for a while. Maybe Jeff can gloat. Harry can say something mean in response. Have you guys seen the those shirts and hats that MLB is selling with who wants it more yeah, on it with, with the, 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 the ones, the generic, like the hat with the print on the back, that's okay. Yeah. Like, we want it more. Okay. We all do. But the one that says Chicago, you know, New York, those are pretty bad. Yeah, those are, you're going to see those, you know, in Goodwill bins <laughs> pretty soon. I didn't think anyone would buy the Take October shirts, but apparently those are all over the place, at least judging by the crowd shots tonight. Yeah. I thought it was because they're hoodies and it's cold and people yeah, weren't prepared. Well, that's why I have, it's why I have a I have a Kane County Cougars hoodie because of poor weather forecast reading. Mm-hmm. I have a yeah. Mets one as well. Yeah. <laughs> if you brand it, people will buy. So, which one of you guys wants it more? Oh, I think we all want it less than Daniel Murphy. I think that's true. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're the Mets scouting guy. Yeah. Okay. Scout some Daniel Murphy for me. So. They're going to tell you that he worked with Kevin Long this season on pull power stuff, you know, pulling fastballs, mm-hmm. trying to yank it down the line at City Field, which actually, for all the talk about City Field being like an extreme pitcher's park, if you're an extreme lefty pull hitter, like, say, Chase Utley, that's a pretty inviting uh, left field line there. Mm-hmm. The Mets just haven't had any hitters since City Field opened. They could actually hit for power for the most part to that part of the park or any part of the park so you started they're going to tell you so it sounds like there's a conspiracy coming no i don't think there's a conspiracy coming necessarily i mean <laughs> murphy has this is what they'll tell you stretches <laughs> like this um you know there's a lot of been work been done on sort of are all hitters streaky are some hitters streakier than others i think if there is a case for streakiness uh, daniel murphy is a good example of that now normally it's not a power thing it's just uh he's hitting line drives to left center field kind of thing but mm-hmm. you know it's a play it's like anything else it's a a, a week-long sample um over at amazing avenue we did like during the season we do like weekly meters for all the pitchers and position players looking just like how they did over the last week and giving them like up arrows and down arrows we also have a flaming dicky face like inside a fireball <laughs> i think we started using around dicky's uh 2012 season mm-hmm but if it was just a normal week, like a normal week of baseball, he would just get the flaming, dicky fireball, and we'd all move on with our lives. But it's the playoffs, so... So he gets 
multiple dicky flaming fireballs. Yeah, and another forty million dollars on his contract this year, probably. <laughs> so he was different this year, but also exactly the same, right? Like he right. Yeah. he struck out half as much as he did the year before. He hit for more power, but he walked less, I guess, and didn't do as well when he put the ball in play. So the result was exactly the same, but it was different. Yeah, there's a little more power there. And he's had seasons sort of like this before where he's cut his strikeout rate dramatically and it's gone back to like 12-ish percent mm-hmm. so in, in subsequent seasons, so who knows. So we are know. not witnessing the Daniel Murphy breakout at age 30. We might be. I, I, I'll say this. The last Mets player that had a big power surge like August. If you go back to August, I think, and again, a lot of that might be functionally. They were facing the Rockies, Phillies, and... Marlins a lot. Mm-hmm. But if you go back and look at it, I think he was slugging something like 533 yeah. since August 1st. And sort of the last Mets player that did something like that after a swing tweak. And I think they're probably he probably was working with Kevin Long on pull power stuff, because why not? And then left the team, as Murphy might as a free agent, was Justin Turner. <laughs> right. And that seemed to stick. So <laughs> yeah. fool me once, shame on me. I don't know. So beware of red-haired... <laughs> Yeah. Hot September hitting. All right. <laughs> Bad defensive second baseman, I guess. Uh, on it. So I tweeted after the home run early on just a joke, a Daniel Murphy scouting report, which was just an empty <clears throat> notepad file that said walk him on the first line, and there was an empty second line. And then they actually followed my scouting report. What did, what did you guys make of the intentional walk. Stupid. I was like, I very rarely find in-game moves by managers to be like highly questionable. Mm-hmm. But that one seemed to be questionable on all levels for me. I mean, one, Arietta doesn't want to do it and didn't like doing it. And just for someone who clearly wasn't fully comfortable on the mound, making me even less comfortable was probably not a good idea. He sucks at handling base runners. And you have a good hitting team. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't... <laughs> It wasn't the pitcher coming up. It was Cespedes. And they, they did get a, you know, they did get a, a kind of a, a ball that could have been turned into a ground ball, but it was just put in the right, you know, don't play. It was turned put in a place where it wasn't. But it just seemed crazy to me to just, in that situation, to put an extra base runner on. It just seemed so completely unnecessary. And you did get, you know, Grandy took advantage of nobody really paying attention to him and the double clutch by Montero who's had a lot of trouble throwing the ball to take third. So it seemed like just very little benefit. And it's like you can pitch around Murphy, you can do something, but just telling Arietta you can't get this guy out. You're gonna we're gonna put him on is I don't know. I thought it was super strange. Yeah. And so you are an Arietta scholar. You have studied Arietta going back to even before he became unbeatable how did he look to you tonight and in his last start did you notice any diminishment or was it just you know the usual stuff that happens to pitchers uh it's location is, was the issue and i think he was overthrowing and just looked to be you know, when, he's, when he's throwing the ball up and pulling balls then it was kind of a sign that he, he's rushing through his delivery mm-hmm. and when he stays in that kind of nice reasonable balance position and this kind of his hips just start launching towards the plate in a very natural, smooth slide. He wasn't really doing that. He was just kind of suddenly just whipping around. I, I kind of talk, I mean, I'm not a scout, you know, I'm not a mechanics guy, but I will talk a lot about guys either kind of going towards towards the plate with their hip or going around their hip to get to the plate. And a lot of, you know, that's like the difference between driving and, you know, getting your arm going too fast and getting in front of your, you know, your weight transfer. You know, mm-hmm. I think of things a lot like this all, whether it's hitting, golfing, 
or pitching. It's a very similar thing. And he was just too fast, too pumped up, too much adrenaline. And he didn't handle that. And he even was talking about that before the game and changed his pregame routine a bit to try and tone down. But we could see everybody was like, oh, boy, he's overthrowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as he settled down, I mean, the, the first the pitch to, that Murphy hit for the home run wasn't that bad of a pitch. You know? No, it wasn't. And, 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 you know, as, as Jeffrey noted, there's, you know, a nice place to tuck that ball. And he did. And he, and he, and he looped it over that, that the fence there. You won't find that in Wrigley. Wrigley's got the wells and it's crazy deep down the lines, actually. It's really hard to hit a ball down the line. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was not terrible a pitch. And then he went on a run there where he, it, that seemed to suck all the adrenaline out of him. Mm-hmm. And suddenly he was just kind of like, Whoa. and that was actually better for him pitching. And he seemed to suddenly, you know, the next inning or so, the next two innings, he's had better angle on his pitches. You could see his sinker was really starting to go across. But, you know, I noticed some things when I charted the game. He threw more four-seam fastballs today than he has. And that may have been because he didn't feel his command was good or maybe he was trying to do something different in different situations. But he's been almost not throwing that pitch. So seeing him throw even a half dozen, I noticed that was kind of strange. Mm-hmm. But the big thing was he was just missing and missing. And he started putting the pitches in better places later, but he used up way too many bullets early in the game to do it. So he settled down. He looked better. I think it's a matter of the guy learning how his body feels. And he's very self-aware, almost hyper-aware. Uh, and so maybe in these types of situations, he's the type of person who needs a few times of experience to understand how his body reacts under that incredible stress. That so is you, different than anything you've ever seen. So you wouldn't necessarily speculate that it was fatigue related. If anything, it was excess energy related. I would say so, yes, because when he calmed down and was more in rhythm, his stuff looked the same. Uh-huh. Well, Sam and I were talking the other day about how, as incredible as he's been, if we were just to see him throw a few pitches without knowing how great he's been, we would think he was a very good pitcher, but we wouldn't necessarily say that he jumps off the screen as the best pitcher in baseball or one of the top two or three. And you are the only person who has, in a sense, seen every pitch thrown in the last several years. We had you on episode 281, and you talked about how you tag every pitch in PitchFX, so you've seen at least a blob that represents every pitch thrown in the PitchFX era. So does Arietta look to you like a guy who would win a billion games in a row just looking at his pitch plots and his stuff? No one does. Yeah. Uh-huh. No one does. But you do look at his stuff and his combination of pitches. And, and when you realize that his primary fastball, you know, he's, he's not an, he's not a three quarters arm slot guy. If you look at his stuff on a day where he's not throwing his four seam and you just assume that his fastball, well, it's gotta be a four seam. You, you think you're looking at a guy with three quarter delivery, but he's pretty much, you know, kind of more over the top with a bit of a crossfire. So knowing that, Knowing what his actual arm path is, plus the angle he's coming to you from, from way off to the side, way off third base, you have this combination of a very hard moving sinker. That ball just has a lot of lot of movement on it. And you, then you have the slider cutter slaughter thing, which he can change speeds on so much. And he's got what pretty much amounts to a hammer curve. And he has a change up with depth and some fade. So you look at the stuff and you're like, oh, goodness, this guy has a whole bunch of good pitches. And one of them, he can really manipulate the speed on it, that being the slutter. And, and then when you go look at him pitch and you look at his physique and you look at just the ease at which he throws the ball. Sam, and his, Sam looks at his physique as often as possible. Well, his, just look at his shoulders. <laughs> they're, they're glorious. Um, you know, I guess he got like 
grief for wearing tank tops when he was in Baltimore, like starting. In, I'm like, if I had shoulders like that, I'd be wearing tank tops to work also. And I, you know, and you were if I was working home, like so. in an office, I'd be like, show up to my cubicle at my desk in the IT department in 1997 in, in, in a tank top. How you doing? But I mean, he's just, he's had, he has the build. He has this hyper competitive mentality. So yes, he has really good looking pitches. He has really good looking stuff, but it's knowing the angle that he's actually delivering. So when you go past just the movement and the speed and understand the angles he's creating and understand his physical attributes and his mental attributes, it's not a shock that he flipped the switch and became a dominating pitcher. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, it happens. It happens where guys, it may not last forever. It may be something here, but guys who are good and have all these things, when they finally get their delivery on a repeatable manner, be able to self-correct during games, really big things like that, like stop explosive innings from happening, you get pitchers who are really good. Yeah. So, Jeffrey, we had you on episode 719. We talked about Jacob deGrom's origin story. Which of the Mets' many excellent starters right now gives you the most confidence, or is it impossible to pick one i think it's probably still Degrom. Uh-huh. um i if you look back at my twitter feed for game five of the nlds you might not be convinced by that statement <laughs> but i think the fact that he was able to win without his best stuff and there was some luck in there i know when we talked on that episode he had just gotten shelled by the phillies right after apparently he had food poisoning bad burger uh-huh. <laughs> the night before when they got into the hotel room but you know he didn't have much and he's Went through a pretty good Dodgers lineup multiple times, managed to put it together a little bit as the game went on and gave him six innings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's and at the top end, you saw what he did in game one. So you've seen him be able to do both in the playoffs. He's the oldest of the three. Um, he's probably pitched the deepest into seasons of the three throughout his career, which isn't saying much, you know, none of them have thrown 200 innings uh, in a professional season yet. So I guess Harvey just went over and I think DeGrom's gone over in the playoffs now too. So I'm pretty happy that guy's starting game three I mean, in, in the situation the Mets are in right now mm-hmm. and with the, uh, the starting pitching advantage they're going to have in that game. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, you know, then Noah Syndergaard goes out and does what he does tonight and Harvey does what he did in game one. And I think it's, if you were to comp them to a team, I think there's a little bit of, and they, they haven't pitched quite as well, and the, they weren't as established while they're doing this, but the 2005 White Sox is starting to come to mind a little bit uh-huh. as a team that's just getting a random, I don't want to say random, but a sustained great run of starting pitching. Well, they had um, they didn't have the highs that this team does probably, but they had health right? Like none of their starters missed a start all season. It was crazy. Wasn't it just a solid rotation? Yeah. Yeah. Essentially the six, the six starters that are on the playoff roster, I think made probably a hundred and over 150 of the starts for the team this year. Certainly. Yeah. So Harry, what's the DEFCON Cubs fan level right now? It's (laughs) it's been at DEFCON, what, five is the worst level, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, oh, so De- Cubs fandom has been at DEFCON 5 since approximately, let's say, about September 4th, 1969. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's been on a steady state. I mean, my, my experience in baseball started, you know, I mean, I grew up rooting mostly for the Mets, and the 86 World Series was awesome. Wait, DEFCON 5, least severe. So yeah, well, DEFCON no. DEFCON 1. Well, Oh, well, whatever. It's bad. It's yeah. one depth on one. It's bad. So clear war is imminent. So, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, I really didn't care at all for the Mets. 
uh, and at that at that like time in life, you know, I moved to Chicago, and then so I I, I use this phrase today actually, and I was like, I'm glad I remembered it. But I had about a seven year fallow period where I didn't have a baseball team that was my favorite team mm-hmm. between roughly 1988 and 1995. So mm-hmm. after after the strike, you know, I lived down the street from Wrigley Field at that point. And it just became a matter, you know, by, by the end of 95, because baseball is back. I was a Cubs fan, very solidly by 98, but I didn't understand the complete insanity. And we're going to die of the Cubs fans. I mean, because I grew up in 1969. You mentioned baseball in 1969, the National League in, in, in New Jersey and Long Island. And it's generally a positive response. People's best summer of their lives. You mentioned it here and it ruined high school. It ruined everything for me. It was the worst. You know, it was it was, it was a nightmare. nightmare. And so I, I didn't quite get it until game six of 2003 when I was like, oh, now I know why you people are all so screwed up. And that's when I really started to then be like, you know what, I am a Cubs fan because I think I just, I realized, you know, next thing I know, I was a season take over and the rest is kind of very sad history of, of pain. And it's like basically everybody expects it to go horribly wrong because it always has. But it's not a resignation then? It's not coming to terms with that and no, accepting that? No, no, no. <laughs> if anything, there's a really, really horrific, which I think is worse, actually, a sense of entitlement to a victory. A sense uh-huh. of entitlement to a World Series, and I think that attitude uh, is just disturbing. <laughs> just you know, it's like you're not entitled. Well, the Cubs aren't going to win before I die. You've got to do it before I die. It's like no, you know, it's it's baseball, and we we love it, and it's my career. But it, it's not do it's not life or death. But the the the, the focus on here on actually winning a World Series and act is, is so huge. This season was a tremendous tremendous success. They're possibly, you could argue they're ahead of plan. Things have gotten better faster than they thought they would be. Yeah, people are probably going to look back and go, if they, if they don't miraculously recover from this two-game deficit as well, it was a failure because they didn't win the World Series. Mm-hmm. And believe me, that is going to probably be the prevailing opinion. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, you know, right, wrong, or different. That's just the way it is here. But what's going to happen is they're going to spin this into some type of disaster. They're going to find a way. Arietta fell apart. Arietta can't. There's going to be the narrative weaving because reality is it's a good baseball team playing another good baseball team in a high variance game under a lot of pressure. And hey, look what happens. Yeah, it's very much like the Astros story. It's at least a year ahead of where we expected them to be and everyone thought they'd be good, but not this soon. And they got to the playoffs, which is kind of amazing and more than anyone expected. And it seems like you should be happy. Got past the Pirates, got past the Cardinals. Uh Uh-huh. Then you have to go into New York and face a team that knew, and people don't talk about this, but the Mets knew they were a dangerous team this year because they're like, look at, you know, they, the, the starting pitching they have most or any organization would kill for what they have. And even after um, uh, Wheeler went down, you know, you still have all this talent. So this is a, an extremely good pitching staff that is like the exact kind of pitching staff. You know, minus how long have they gone? You know, have they thrown two eight hundred innings? Have they you know, pitched this deep into a year before? And all the all those things. This is the type of thing you want in a playoff series. Is you just can throw dominating pitchers. And as kind of Jeffrey's alluded to earlier, the, the, the starting pitching deficit is going to be very big now. Yeah, I mean Lester to Arietta, and then you know it's okay. Uh-huh. There's these other guys. <laughs> they kind of put it together, and it, and it can work. Some of them have good days. I mean Hendricks is a crafty pitcher, but he has no margin for error. Arietta could come out today without his command and still get by on stuff, which he. Pretty much did. He still kept the team in the game, kept the team in the game, and all those old-fashioned things. Hendricks, if he doesn't have it, he's he's gone second inning. You, mm-hmm. you take because if he doesn't have, if he's not hitting his spots and getting his counts going his way, just good night. So let me 
ask you this. Starting a team today from scratch, which would you rather have, Cubs lineup or Cubs young position players or Mets rotation slash Mets young starters? Honestly, it, that's a great question, but I think you have to go with the position players because the the risk of starting pitching. And if you look at the way the Cubs, because basically that's the Cubs philosophy was get mm-hmm. young hitters and they've assembled like the best group of that. But then you could say the other philosophy is go the other way, but there's so much risk. And, and with, with pitching injury, pitching is so much harder to project and use to broad base. So it's as tempting as it is, as much as I love the Mets pitching staff, you look at the, all the guys who are probably going to be thumping for several years in lineups. It's, you take the Cubs. Do you care to disagree, Jeffrey? No, I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll go further as to you say... You're supposed to fight. Come yeah, on, I fight. Know. Sorry, it's, Dan. It's, it's, the Mets starting pitching is great. I'm, I'm happy to be able to watch that, you know... Four out of well, Bartolo too. So basically, every day is great for different reasons. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with Bartolo. He's no. perfect in every way. It's, okay, Zach Wheeler no. exists also. Okay. Yeah. So throwing Wheeler yeah. too. That's uh, four out of those five young arms have already had a Tommy John surgery, mm-hmm. and, and Noah Syndergaard's had arm issues for the past two seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're losing. You know, you basically have to. I think we're almost at the point in time with these guys. You have to basically say they're going to miss a year, maybe more, depending on when it happens. This is crazy it's true though but and with a position player it's it's a catastrophic unusual injury that you lose a year for a pitcher it's like well you know about a third of them (laughs) it's a little different it's like it's it really think about that it's like some of you may be in a car accident you guys are there you're totally getting car accidents because you're driving around blindfolded and drunk that's that's pitching all right so if we can broaden the scope we have two series both 2-0 if you guys had to pick one of the teams that is currently losing 2-0 as more likely to come back in the series. Which would you go with, Blue Jays or Cubs? Either one of you can start. Blue Jays. I think Blue Jays. I think uh, solely because I think the, the pitching matchup favors the Mets so strongly in Game 3. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's even, what it comes down to. And what's and even Game 4 is a mystery as well. I sure. Think that, that extends to two games. So even though the Cubs are coming home for three games... You know, the pitching is a huge question mark. You see, you have basically two teams with really good offenses coming home. And as Jeffrey said, the pitching is not set up advantageously for one. And I think there is something to, um, not that it really played out that way in the divisional series, that the Blue Jays could go home in the Sky Dome and pull off a little run Mm -hmm. against the pitchers the Royals are going to be throwing out there. Like Chris Young starting one of those games, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Young, Rogers Center is a little scary. Yeah. Basically, you're taking the, the, the Royals pitching set up with the Cubs home field advantage. You know, it's like, like if you flip around, that's a really good setup. Hey, you're going home. You got you got good, good pitching. You're not not facing tough pitching. You have a good chance to get out ahead. You know, you've got last licks in the ninth inning. You had all the advantage of the crowd. The, the the umpire's subliminal messaging that you're passing him through the crowd and through the video boards. You know, that's getting you the extra call. But yeah, the Cubs are Cubs are really having an uphill battle. Today was the game that was. There was a little argument on TBS pregame. Is this a must-win game? Like, yeah, this is kind of a must-win game because it doesn't set up well. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It doesn't mean you throw up any white flags because you have no idea what the heck's going to happen. Hendricks could throw a one-hitter. For, you know, he might go seven innings to shut the shut the Mets down. But that's not nearly as likely as somebody like Jacob DeBrugham coming in and doing it. So mm-hmm. it's like there's probabilities, but the over the overwhelming advantage, I think, pitching-wise is, is no comparison. What did you guys make of the Royals' comeback in Game 2? Was it just randomness combined with Royals' singles-hitting skill? Was it 
David Price falling apart? Was it there being too slow a hook by John Gibbons? Some combination of the above? I think there always has to be one ace-level pitcher that columnists can write a he-can't-get-it-done-in-the-playoffs narrative about, and now they can't do it about Kershaw. The universe is self-corrected. Mm-hmm. Well, makes sense. Yeah, well, for the first six innings, it looked like they wouldn't be able to do it about Price. How, how did the Royals do it twice in four playoff games? Is that right? Yeah. Four, game two? Yeah. That's it's insane. Um, yeah, no, there's definitely some luck. There were some fluky plays. But yeah, they strung together a lot of singles. It wasn't like they're hitting everything over the fence. They weren't bleeders either, though. No, they weren't. Other than the pop-up that fell. Other than the pop-up, yeah. They were all like legitimate hits that Price gave up afterwards. Yeah, they weren't cheapies, but they weren't completely, you know, they weren't you know, world-beating either. It's, it's baseball, man. You know, you can, especially in the playoffs, every, these things get magnified. It's like, you know, oh, mistake. Everything, the pressure, the pressure, the response. Instead of shrugging it off, the pitcher suddenly feels like, oh my gosh. I have to make up for this. Mm-hmm. And it just changes everything. Yeah. It's just this different environment. But it's also devil magic. <laughs> right. As good as Price is, you can, I mean, normally we talk about third time through the order and all that, but Price, third time through the order, is still debatably the best option for many teams. I mean, with the Blue Jays not having Brett Cecil, you could say that, you know, if you're, if it's too early for, Sanchez and Osuna, and maybe you could have strung those guys together for three innings, but to at least give him the chance to start that inning seems legitimate. Doesn't seem like something you can kill in hindsight, really. I'm interested in what Jeffrey has to say, because he's kind of seen Collins leave pitchers out seemingly a long time, and it worked yeah. out. Yeah. Yes. Um, actually, for the last four, how many, five years that he's been there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> He does have a tendency to leave guys in like 10 pitches too long, two batters too long when the you know the command starts to go and the velocity starts to drop. He did that a lot with Harvey, Wheeler to DeGrom to a certain extent. I think you got to, with Price, It's I think it's different when it's an established veteran pitcher, you know, an established ace. You expect him to be able to go out there and get you the seventh inning based on what he'd done for the first six. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess the... The one time you could really get on Collins, and, and that might just be a post hoc thing because it didn't work, was in game two with Syndergaard. He probably he gave him the seventh, and it went bad quickly, you know, you know, quick walks, that kind of stuff, and maybe the hook could have been a little bit quicker there. But, of course, if they turn that double play, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. We all know what happened there. Um, but, you know, in the playoffs, their strategy has very much been, you know, up until tonight, I think there may be two and a third innings pitched by pitchers that weren't in the starting rotation this year or J.R. Samilia in the playoffs. And that's very much been their approach. And it kind of has to be, I think. Uh, you know, Addison Reed looked fine. Tyler Clippard looked fine. But ideally, you want to shorten these games as much as possible. And they've been able to do that. And I think that's, we think of sort of the, when we think of sort of the playoffs, we think I think now in sort of game management we think of the royals model where it's you know you want to shorten games as much as possible by getting your bullpen in there but most teams don't have four lights out relievers they can just roll out there for the sixth through ninth Mm -hmm. so i think the mets have looked at it as we still think this starter who's still throwing 95 plus in the seventh inning even into the eighth inning you know is a better option than a good but not spectacular setup guy which is sort of i think an anathema to sort of recent baseball orthodoxy and what do you make of the bartolo cologne reliever experiment um it's a joy yeah <laughs> fire I mean, i've taken to calling him fireman bart i was hoping for closer bart tonight 
Because <laughs> Familia really looks like he needs a day at this point. He's pitched in, I think, six of their seven games. He's pitched a lot. He pitched multi-innings in a bunch of them. And you can kind of like the – it's cold, and everybody's velocity was a little bit down tonight from where I've seen them in the past. And the yeah, same, he doesn't have the top level. He doesn't have like the 98, 99 yeah. with the sinker, and he's not really throwing a split that much, which I think is probably more of a function of the cold weather than even the velocity issue. I mean, it's not really an issue because the stuff – still really good but you know he's not missing as many bats i know the strikeout rate isn't there it's a it's a very short sample and again one for two covering first one for two covering first um he ran so hard to the base oh my gosh i know he was like oh i'm gonna get there (laughs) he's like like a really good athlete for his size uh in general it was just funny that he just Make up for it. Make up for it. <laughs> I, I do wonder how long you can keep doing this, though. I mean, it's worked so far, and they can maybe they should keep pressing this button. Right. Well, someone on the one of the broadcasts said, like, you know, this is going to be the next act of his career, like reliever part, who lasts until he's fifty. I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know well, if I see that I mean, happening. But the thing is, he can probably get another two-year contract this off-season, right? He's pitched well enough. He's been healthy. I mean, at least he maybe a one-year the team option. He can pitch. I think he's it's interesting. He, his niece coming out of the bullpen throwing 93, 94. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Well, he he dropped down to like the Laredo thing too that he would do yeah. on occasion. That was all. I think he, he threw one pitch from his uh, higher slot today and the rest were all dropped a little bit. Hold on. Everything was, yeah, knees are lower, which is interesting. He's They don't have any of the left-handed options, really. They moved Sean Gilmartin into the playoff roster for this series and dumped uh, Eric Goodell, so it's another lefty, but he's not really a traditional Left-on-left guy who's a minor league starter, and his best secondary is his changeup. No, he, this, he was a good choice for Rizzo. That, yeah, that it the, worked. Yeah, it was a really tough angle. Mets fans were terrified. It, should, it was the perfect thing because, you know, that angle he was coming from and yeah. the, the outside was like the strike zone's been generous all postseason. Uh, so it was it was well done. and He just threw everything, ended up just bearing everything, basically. But he had a, he had room to go outside inside if he wanted to like back him trying you know but he didn't it was just bang 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 because he was throwing so hard so he had different ways to get after Rizzo and he just took one and pounded him away wasn't didn't even look hard yeah I know Rizzo got through a few but you know it was the same pitch over and over and even when he sat you know took it you know I don't think he saw it too well so I want to ask about the ALCS game three pitching matchup for later today and it's Johnny Cueto versus Marcus Stroman. And both of these guys are really interesting pitchers, probably from a, a pitch FX perspective as well as a watching them perspective. Yeah. And, I mean, Stroman has just a surplus of excellent pitches that he's been experimenting with, and he's got multiple breaking balls, and they don't look and like... A, the... And they're kind of atypical. He's yeah, not, so like explain... Arietta kind of looks like standard kit. Yeah, so explain the, the strange it, arsenal... He's... Of well, he's a guy who's kind of got rid of the four-seamer because he figured out a good, really nasty two-seam grip uh, and command. So he can go, he can move his fastball a lot. So he's got that. Then he's got his cutter, which he throws hard and has good movement. Then his slider, which is almost like a short curve. And then his curve, which is almost like a slurvy slider. <laughs> so, and then he throws a changeup. Uh, so the, you, his slider and curve can kind of look, you know, in, in the data, they can look a little similar. I think you, know, you, you can see the sweeping action. The curve seems to have more, a little bit of depth to it, more loop to it of some kind. You can, you can tell. So he, his stuff is awesome. And he's, you know, so he's not tall. 
he can't create the angles and, and whatnot that these big guys can get, but he creates so much spin, so much, so much movement on the ball, and he's throwing a good velocity. I mean, he's just awesome. He's yeah, just uh, awesome. So I love this guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's great. It's he's great to listen to. He's great to oh. watch. He's everything. So he's from Long Island. Come on, <laughs> he's perfect. He's a perfect human. So since he's come back this year, he's been like a very heavy ground ball guy maybe fewer strikeouts than the previous Stroman model, but he maybe has the potential to be both of those things in the future as he figures out what he wants yes. to do with all of these pitches. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Well, that's he's got, scary. Yeah. yeah. No, he's, he's, he's downright pregnant. <laughs> and as for Cueto, we, I, we talked about him a bit on Friday's show and how he bounced back in his most recent start. But I, I mean, and he also, according to your pitch classifications, really switch things up with his four-seamer and his sinker his last he's time? Ins- you know, he's insane, like really hard to tag. Right. He throws the ball different ways. He's pitching. So he's a, he's one of those guys where it's never distinct, especially with his uh, glove side pitches. His slider, cutter, and curve are really, they're all on a continuum, and they share many locations. So it's really hard sometimes. And yeah, he's he seems to change up what he wants to do with his sinker and his fastball sometimes. And he might be one of those guys which who comes out and says, which one feels better today? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we may always, especially with him, we may always go back and revisit his pitches. With a guy like Arietta, it's like, that's what it is. It's unambiguous. With a guy, you know, Stroman, you can figure it out the first time. Cueto, sometimes you have to sit back and go, what was that? Are we sure? And, yeah. and go back and review because he's he's weird. Yeah. He, he's really crafty, funky type of pitcher. It's a very good, it's a, he is a pitcher. A, a, you know, he's not a, he's got good stuff. It's good, good stuff, but he, he's, He's not like Stroman. He's going to come out there and absolutely dowsy with these ridiculous, crazy pitches. But he's going to change speeds. He's going to move the ball. He changes his delivery. Does you know? So he, he's he's challenging. So did you have a diagnosis of why it wasn't working and why it suddenly did? Well, wasn't he saying it was because he couldn't get a, a good low target? Yeah, he so, did say that. And then after Sal the changes positioning, right, after the target changed, he sort of superficially had better results but still kind of wasn't having the peripherals that he normally does but so maybe they all had nothing to do with each other <laughs> could be i yeah i don't know i mean and again because he's a, he's a type of pitcher who varies his approach quite a bit yeah well he should know? not vary it from what it was in his last start he should stick with that he should stick with that because <laughs> and jeff passon's piece on that game just sort of made it sound like he went out that day and decided he was going to just be better. He was just going to throw a lot harder than he had in the past. Like he was, he was down kind of disturbingly low for a start or two there. And then it really bounced most of the way back in his most recent start. And according to Jeff's story, it was just kind of, he just told himself, all right, I've had enough of not throwing fast. I'm going to throw fast now. Then it worked. So everyone should try to do that. Yeah, I'll, I'll be right out tomorrow trying to throw fast. <laughs> All right. Jeff, I appreciate you being so gracious in victory and Harry so gracious in defeat. Thank you for joining us. Sorry we couldn't, like, first take this for you. <laughs> yeah. I know. All the ingredients were there. I tried to set it up, but you guys yeah. just didn't deliver. Sorry. Yeah, too reasonable. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> you can find Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. You can find Harry on Twitter at Harry Pav. You can find their work at Baseball Prospectus. And you can find our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. 
can also send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And you can support our sponsor, the Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com, using the coupon code BP, and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We will be back tomorrow. Dark at the ballpark, but that's okay. It's a night game.